It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tonight in Milwaukee, eight will enter the arena and eight will leave, but it is the ninth everyone will be thinking of. The first Republican debate is a chance for everyone not called Trump to call out Donald Trump or to demure. The fear is come after the king, then you crash and burn. Call that the Pergozin strategy. Chris Christie will be going strong, Pergozin. Asa Hutchinson. Who him? Yes, he qualified. He's going semi-Pergozin. Nikki Haley is not. Here's what she's looking to do during the debate. Once this debate happens this week, it's off to the races. That's when you're going to start to see people really focus in on different candidates, look at what their options are. We feel really good going into the debate. I love debates, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's a great so opportunity. So that's Fox this weekend. Mike Pence told ABC that he has a plan that doesn't focus on taking shots at the man he once shared a ticket with. You know, one of my goals in, in that debate is... Uh, is for the American people, Republican primary voters, to uh, get to know me in a little bit broader context and uh, demonstrate the kind of leadership that we bring to this, which I think is what the moment calls for. Look, this country... That's right. Two hours, moderators questioned, commercial breaks, uh, seven other candidates. So when you're, what is that, 11 and a half minutes, you're going to demonstrate leadership, offer context, and redefine yourself as the guy who is proud of everything he accomplished as part of Trump-Pence, except for that one last bit, which was illegal and wrong even if the crowd in Milwaukee doesn't want to hear it. Pence definitely does not want to go full Pergozin, but the fate of Pergozin, at least symbolically, seems to be awaiting him. I'm not saying any of the people in the hall in Milwaukee literally want to hang Mike Pence, but they hang with people who hang with guys who chanted, hang Mike Pence. The festivities get underway at 9 Eastern. I will be watching. I'll also be watching for the Kremlin to confirm that Yevgeny Prigozhin, like so many tragic figures before him, fell out a window. The window happened to be on a Legacy 600 model jet in the air 100 meters north of Moscow. On the show today, death tolls, estimated, actual, and the psychological cost of sky-high figures that can never even be confirmed or known. But first... We continue our conversation with Martha Hodes, who was a 12-year-old flying back from Israel when her plane was hijacked. Today, we talk about how Martha never thought of the event until the memories came back after 9-11, how her sister's experience was different from hers, and the quite odd story of how another college historian was involved in the same set of hijackings. Martha Hodes up next. Martha Hodes is now a professor of history at NYU. She actually teaches students techniques in interweaving their memories into their research of the historical record. That is exactly her method in my hijacking, a personal history of forgetting and remembering, which, as you heard yesterday, tells the story of Martha at age 12 being hijacked by Palestinian militants. Now, Martha does use the word hijacked and skyjacked and militants, but she tends to avoid the word terrorist in her book, and I asked her why she preferred to refer to them as commandos and not terrorists. Yeah, another great question. So, you know, I was really interested to find that the word terrorists was not used um, for the most part in the press in 1970. So I did some research. You know, experts disagree about the term terrorists 
like everything, that term has a history, and I am a historian, so I wanted to puzzle out that history. And I found that, you know, not only in 1970 did the mainstream press not consistently invoke that word, they used the word commandos, but right around 1970, there was this shift in the idea of terrorism. Terrorism had formerly been considered and was still considered to be state actors, in other words, not non-state actors, people who were working for a political cause, and that was shifting to what we think of as a more modern day version, which is, you know, they're irrational and savage and are, are crazy and don't know what they're doing and have no connection to a state. And that whole concept was in flux at the time. I was also fascinated to find an interview with George Habash, who was the founder of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, who said this at the time. He said terrorism was, quote, what made of us, meaning Palestinians, refugees. So if you're going to use the word terrorism, you have to use it not just for one group, but for groups that many different people have considered to be terrorists. Well, if you want to be consistent and fair, you do. But if you want to use it political cultural, you don't. But I'll submit something else. Maybe at the time in 1970, when hijackings to Cuba were seen as somewhat prankish, when Monty Python was doing sketches, when they hijacked all these planes and it dominated our attention for a week and no one except one would-be hijacker was killed, there wasn't terror associated with it. There were geopolitical kerfuffles and there were some amounts of just intrigue, but it wasn't until maybe Munich in 72 where Black September executed these Israeli athletes. And maybe I'm missing another gigantic conscious shifting moment in the history of quote unquote terrorism, but that's probably a reason as well, I would say, but I I haven't studied the history you have. No, I think you're right. I think that's right. And what's interesting about Munich, the Munich Olympics in 1972 is because of what happened in Munich and also what happened in Entebbe in, I believe, 1976, the 1970 hijackings slipped out of consciousness and and became largely forgotten because no one died, because we all got home safely. And, you know, something that had been this spectacular event of air piracy at the time faded away in the wake of really tragic and terrible events. That is correct. So I want to get to, this actually informs one of the major strains of the book, which is about your memory and how after September 11th, you were reminded of what happened to you. I'm sure you were reminded of it often, triggered. Um, Well, first of all, how often, it's hard to know, but in the years, maybe if I surveyed you between 1980 and the year 2000, how many days do you think would go by when you didn't think of being on that plane for uh, almost a week in 1970? Every day. Every day you thought of it. Every day, yes. Would you say your memories were- No, I'd say, sorry, every day I was not thinking about it. Oh, every day you were not thinking about it. Every day not. Yeah, sorry. You never never went back Never, correct. Would you say your memories were repressed? Look, I mean, in the book, I'm reconstructing what happened to me. That's not quite the same as- I think we have to be careful with our terms as, you know, we're we're repressed or recovering memory. That's been debunked, I think. That's been debunked, exactly. So so basically what I was doing was trying to research what had happened to me that I had, you know, willfully forgotten. That's not the same as recovered memory, as you said. But what I was doing was researching what I hadn't been able to fully absorb by researching what happened 
my memories, my sister's memories, the experiences of other people, the interviews that other hostages gave when they came home. Of course, historians love sources that are closest to the time and place that something happened. And then certainly part of my journey was letting my emotions surface, which isn't the same as recovered memory. But yes, uh, I, I would say just, just to repeat and be clear, I never thought about the hijacking. So you mentioned, you talked to your sister about this. Your sister was with you the whole time. And you make a distinction between your response to the events in later years and hers. You had forgotten and wanted to remember. She remembered and wanted to forget. Why the difference? Yeah, that's, and that's something that my sister said to me after the book came out, she said, so in her words, you forgot and wanted to remember. And that's what I was doing in writing the book. And then she said, I remembered and wanted to forget. So my sister was only a year and a half older than I, she was 13 and a half. Um, She did what any older sibling would do. She acted as my buffer. She was on the front line. She felt it was her responsibility to keep us safe. She wanted to make sure we would never be separated. She answered all the questions when the commandos asked us questions. When we got to Amman, she got us a hotel room. So in my story, she was my hero. And because she did all those things, I didn't even have to be tuned in half the time. But she felt she had to be alert because she wanted to make sure that we were both going to be okay. To call her a hero can diminish her own experience. You know, she was a child too, and it was traumatic for her too. She took on a different role. And I think because she had to be so present, she wasn't able to do what I did, which was just absorb as much as I could and nothing more. And so as time passed, she had already remembered and suffered, and she didn't want to do that again. I was the one who wanted to go back and find out what I didn't know. And she was so supportive, although she didn't at all have to be, I would have completely understood if she said, I I don't want to talk about this, but she answered every question. She read the manuscript. She told me her memories and she really went through it with me in a way that was incredibly generous and loving. I guess society, the people you loved, um, most of, for instance, you quote one of your teachers who you'd be in school that year, either conspired by omission or commission to help you forget. You know, one of your teachers said something like, I wish I had known we could have gotten you guidance counseling. And then we could talk about your uh, father's relationship to all of this. And there's a key phrase where he would tell the story about you saying to him, I was so worried about you, dad, when you were reunited. And not just you saying that, but him clinging on to the fact that you said that I think was very important. But my question is, We had a different conception of things like PTSD and mental health. And by the way, that conception keeps changing. And after 9-11, it was thought that you should do a lot of interviews with people to help them process it immediately. And then there was a rethinking of that, maybe to dwell on it, hurt people. But my point is, it seemed to be um, a large effort by a mission or commission to help you forget, do you think they did you a service in everyone who conspired, I'm using that word, conspired to um, instill in you what happened, which is that you didn't remember it or dwell on it or think about it for decades. Yeah, so fascinating when I was researching the book and thinking about this, because I found that, you know, many of the hostages I got in touch with to write the book had also been children at the time because they were my friends on the plane and also because they were the ones who were still alive almost 50 years later. And the vast majority had had a similar experience where parents and teachers 
didn't talk about it and just said, go back to school, everything will be fine. Now, not, not all. There, there were some families that did talk about it, and they were unusual. PTSD did not exist in 1970. I mean, it existed, but <laughs> well, it was it did, not but we named. didn't have the label, yeah, yeah. Correct. And, and there of was course, battle you know, fatigue. There was shell exactly. shock. These are people shell literally who had been on the exactly. front lines. Right. Yes, and I mean, I'm a historian of the Civil War, so there are all kinds of ways in which historians and people at the time wrote about Civil War soldiers and, and, and what they experienced. But the medical term PTSD was first named in 1980. And I should say that my sister and I, if we were going to diagnose, diagnose ourselves now, we did not come home with PTSD, we, which is very, very long term in its effects. We, we came home with what would have been called acute stress disorder, which is much more short lived. And that's what, what we would have had. So yes, um, I was amazed to find out that although my father went to our schools and said, my daughters are on those hijacked planes and will not be here for the first day, whatever authority he told didn't tell that to the teachers. So in my seventh grade classroom, I was absent and the teacher would call my name and my best friend had to say, Martha's not here. She's on one of those hijacked planes. And that was very traumatic, I learned during writing the book for her because she didn't know if I was coming home or not. No counseling. You know, these days, the students who were the friends of a hijacking victim and the, and the student themselves would have immediately had access to counseling. We did not have that. I don't think that was a good thing. I also discovered in my research that, you know, my sister, when she came home, she was the one who did want to talk about it. And my father and I you use this word, so I'll use it too. We kind of conspired to shut her down. Everything's fine. We don't need to talk about it. And so she eventually had to give up and go along with that. And I do not think that was beneficial to her. I think that she and we should have been encouraged to talk about it as much as we could or wanted to. And we were not. I do not think that was helpful to us. Yeah. There's there's a medium. I dwell on this on my show all the time, which is the tension between resilience and sensitivity. So I think if something like this happened now, the counselors would be thrown at the kids, you know, endlessly, and it would be almost impossible not to talk about it, you know, in a therapeutic setting. And maybe maybe that's good. But what happened to you wasn't a choice to opt into the idea of resiliency and to gauge where you were psychologically and to say, okay, maybe she doesn't need this amount of counseling. It was just more of a silence descended and no one really questioned it. Right. Absolutely right. You're an eminent historian at one of New York City's premier colleges, New York City's uh, NYU, New York City's other premier college is Columbia University. There's an eminent historian there named Alice Kessler Harris. And one day, years later, this blew my mind. You find out that she too was involved in this series of plane hijackings. How did that discovery get made? Yeah, that was amazing. So Alice Kessler Harris, as you said, eminent historian at Columbia University, also a historian of the US. So we had been colleagues for years, years. Um, I was presenting a paper to a, a writing workshop. It was a group of New York University, Columbia, Princeton, New York City area grad students and faculty who got together once a month to present work in progress. And I was writing this book. So I presented a paper. You know, everybody gives feedback. It's a very friendly workshop. So I'm at the workshop. And one of the professors, who was actually a professor at Rutgers, member of the workshop, he said, you know, Alice Kessler-Harris was on the LL plane in 1970. 
And like you, my mind was blown. I wrote Alice a message and I said, and I always said this when I contacted fellow hostages, you know, I, I told her I just found this out. And I said, I completely understand if you don't want to talk about this. But if you do, I would love to talk to you. She wrote me back and said, I'm blown away. Let's talk. We met at a cafe near Columbia. We ordered coffee. I don't think either of us drank the coffee. What we did was we told each other our story. She had been on the LL plane in which the hijackers were foiled. She was traveling with her six-year-old daughter, and they were sitting right behind the hijackers. So they experienced everything in a way that was incredibly traumatic. So they, because the security guards shot the hijackers, and because the captain on the LL plane put the plane into a nosedive so that the hijackers would lose their footing, everybody else was seatbelted in because they had just taken off from their stopover. What they experienced was dishes, suitcases, everything crashing to the floor, blood everywhere, all over the place. Um, Alice's young daughter turning to her and saying, you mean I'm never going to see my daddy again? So very, very traumatic. My jaw was on the floor listening to her. Then I told my story and I think she felt the same. She couldn't believe that I'd been 12 years old and in the desert for six days and six nights. You know, there's no, this was better, this was worse, this was more or less traumatic. But we had both experienced this, and it was incredible for us to exchange stories and something we hadn't known about each other all the years we had been colleagues. How might going through the process of uh, reliving this, re-reporting this book, doing things like going through to the TWA terminal and standing in the exact spot where you and your sister and your father would have been reunited, going to the international, the Intercontinental Hotel in Jordan, going to these places, talking to these people. How did it change or will it change that course that we talked about up top? Yeah. Um, it's so interesting because I'm teaching my autobiography and history course this fall. And it's something, as I am crafting the syllabus for this course, which I am doing currently, I'm wondering how much to share with the students. I think it's helpful for students to have a sense of who the professor is in relation to the subject being taught. What I've decided is I'm going to make parts of the book available for students on their course website, but the reading of it will be optional. Uh-huh. And in a discussion, in a discussion, I would never make the students buy my own book. That seems unethical. Um, and also, I think it's hard for students to talk about the professor's own writing the way you would talk about another assignment. So what I've done in the past, and I'll do this again, is let's just let's just have a Q&A. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not quizzing you on this. You're not responsible for this material. But if there are questions you want to ask me, I also don't want the students to feel like in order to think about their own lives in historical context, they somehow have to have gone through a world historical event. They don't at all. And one of the things that's been so, I guess, sad but heartening to me in the responses I've gotten to the book from readers and messages I've received, I've been so interested to see that people have written to me very eloquently and, and very movingly about things that have happened to them in their own lives that relate to forgetting and remembering. It could be the death of a parent at a young age or a victim of political violence. Um, and people will write to me and say, you know, I read your book and this made me think of my own journey toward trying to remember something I wanted to dismiss. And that's what I wanted readers to take from the book. You don't have to have gone through a world historical event. In our own lives, there's so much 
a lot of which we experience as children, although it doesn't have to be as children, you know, that we come back to later in our lives and try to make sense of the significance of and try to remember things we didn't want to remember at the time and what those experiences meant to us and how they shaped us. And that's what's important to me in writing, the, in, was important and is important to me in writing the book and having it out there. Well, one could argue we're all going through a world historical event all the time. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things I tell my students, I've been telling my students since March 2020, at least, you are living through history. The COVID-19 pandemic, among other events, but you are living. Th- I was teaching my autobiography seminar when the, when the pandemic happened and we all had to switch to remote teaching. And we talked about we are living through history, just the way, you know, I wrote a book about personal responses to Lincoln's assassination. Those people wrote letters to one another saying, wow, we're living through history. The name of the book is My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. It's written by Martha Hodes, who's a professor of history at New York University. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. A pleasure to speak with you. And now the spiel. The death toll of the Lahaina wildfires is, as of this recording, 115. It's the deadliest fire in over 100 years. And there are still somehow 800 missing. I don't honestly know what to do with that figure. It seems impossible that the death toll will be close to 1,000, but it seems impossible for it to be this high at all. You will hear the correct statement, as I just said, that this is the deadliest U.S. wildfire in modern U.S. history, but you will also frequently hear this misstatement as from Tim Pulliam of ABC News. Today, there's growing questions around Maui County's response to the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. Wildfires, by the way, is now just the preferred term uh, as opposed to forest fires, but there were forest fires in U.S. history that killed over a thousand. I shamefully had never even heard of the Peshtigo Fire of 1871, maybe because it occurred on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire, but it killed an estimated 1,152 people. There were other fires, then called forest fires, that killed close to a thousand. This isn't a nitpick of numbers segment, and it's by no means meant to diminish the tragedy. It's a contemplation of tragic events and what we should do with the death tolls and how we should act in response and how we should process them as horrible parts of life, unprecedented events, signs of worsening collapse, necessarily leading to hopelessness? That is the question. The question of how to think and feel about scores of dead who shouldn't be has always been hard to put into meaningful thoughts and then translate those thoughts into words. Back when he was a normal, even laudable leader, Rudolph Giuliani had this to say on the day of September 11th when asked about potential casualties. The number of casualties will be more than any, any of us can bear, ultimately. It wasn't an evasion. It was a way to orient us, the people listening to him. It was an appeal to a more resilient mindset. The way we should think about the 115 dead in Maui, probably more by tomorrow, is to deeply investigate what happened and to acknowledge the factors are some of human mistakes, some of misfortune, certainly about weather conditions, which do very much seem to have been influenced by climate change, drought and hurricane winds. So I can conceptualize dozens and dozens of dead in Maui. I don't want to, but I can. And to help me do that and to get my head around it as a person, there will be 
grave markers and memorials, and we'll remember the lives and legacies of the people and know how they died. But then we come to this next estimate. This is the number of dead in Europe's heat wave of last year. This is the second savage summer for Europe in a row. 2022's blast of extreme heat may have killed an astonishing 61,000 people, Spanish researchers reported this week, as they emphasize that European cities are not adapting fast enough to a warming climate. That was the CBC, but the number was widely reported, New York Times, Guardian, CNN, everywhere. But I've been reading about the methods and assumptions behind such a figure. I'm not 100% convinced that we could say they're right. I did invite a climate scientist from Johns Hopkins on the show for a future in-depth conversation about how this technique uses the fraction of attributable risk. I won't bore you with it now. But let's just say, if this count is accurate, it means there were more Europeans killed by last year's heat wave than there were by Russians rolling into the European country of Ukraine. What does it mean to say that 61,000 died of heat? Oh, I do understand the assertion. It's that if the heat wasn't as bad as it was last year, there would have been 61,000 more people alive at the end of the year. Okay. But those people who died of the heat wave almost never seemed to their survivors to have, or the authorities who put things down on birth certificates, to have died of heat stroke or heat exhaustion. They were almost all very old. They certainly experienced stressors on their bodies that ultimately accumulated in ways that resulted in death, but not even during the heat wave. It could have just been the body gets stressed out and by the end of the year, they die. The actual death count in the war, by the way, is also characterized by graves and remembrances and offers of ritual and tradition as ways to cope with loss. But what about this estimate, 61,000, what to do with that? It leads to free-floating anxiety. It's possibly wrong. It's possibly too high. It's also possibly too low. I mean, we come to the figure, it's actually 61,672 with a 95% confidence interval of somewhere between 37,646 and 86,807. It's just the midpoint. If you read about that study, the 61,000 study, you certainly felt doom. Even if you didn't, you should know the heat exacerbated by human-influenced climate change is nothing but destructive. But the number only seems like an actual number. What it really is, is a five-digit approximation of an idea, and not even so much a cognitive idea, more of a feeling, a feeling of dread and, I think, almost inevitably, some form of hopelessness. So in the 1980s and 1990s, and for the decades before, but this is when I was alive and paying attention, in the U.S., lots of airplanes crashed. Happened all the time. People died, hundreds of them. I mean, just between 1994 and 1996, we heard this from our newscasters. An airliner has crashed into the Florida Everglades. Right now, 109 people are presumed dead. Officials say there's virtually no chance that anybody survived. And the latest TWA report indicates 210 passengers and a crew of 18 were on the plane. Now we blew up in the air and then we saw two fireballs go down to the, to the water. The crash of U.S. Air Flight 427 has nearby Beaver County, Pennsylvania in chaos. No confirmation yet on how many people are dead. The latest estimate is 130. Everyone on the plane. 
It's just, it's a horrible sight. So I was in World War II. I never seen anything like that. It's a mess. It's 37 people killed in the crash of U.S. Air Flight 1016. Emergency crews raced to the wreckage of an American Eagle plane that crashed during its final approach to Raleigh-Durham International Airport. 13 people were killed, seven others injured. And that's not even every air fatality taken into account. But they were all actual dead from actual crashes. And because of human error or engineering, we as a society fixed it. There are almost no commercial airline crashes today. There was a solidity and specificity to the challenge. We rose to it. Yet today on the front page of the New York Times, there was an article about the big number of near misses. 46 in a month, they said. Air disasters are rare in the U.S. Close calls are a different story. That's the headlines. But how do you compare a near miss to a crash? This is also a concept. Are these near misses, these close calls, 99% of the way of getting to a crash? Or is a miss just, no matter what, 0% a crash? I guess we could say that every near miss has some chance of being a crash. What's that chance? I don't know. If every near miss had a 5% chance of being a crash, if you took 46 attempts at that, you'd have gotten one crash over 95% of the time. If you're not number-oriented, just look at it this way. Since a crash never happened, this article is certainly a chronicle of actual events that are close to calamities, but it also could be a chronicle of events that seem close to calamities, but were actually very far from happening. Even the uncertainty about all of that, I read the story, I learned something, uh, I try not to experience or I don't naturally experience that much anxiety, but it, the uncertainty is unsettling. I understand the free-floating, unmoored feeling of doom and dread that such a story, such an event can bring into being. And the dread and doom that we actually hear about, like the Maui wildfires, the one, the things that we can actually get our heads around, even if supposedly too much to bear, we're told that they're not as bad as they could be, or we're told in the case of those wildfires, they're worse than ever before. We forget about those forest fires that killed a lot of people that we totally forget about, but that we built back from, or we got past, or that we just forgot about, but moved on. One thing about the tragic, the truly tragic, those world-shaking tragedies, is that they are usually noticeable. Fire, plane crash, there's a finality to them. The new kind of tragedy is estimated, alleged, or could be happening. We don't know. People were once poisoned by a gas cloud in India, by a Tylenol bottle in Chicago, by a cult leader in Guyana. Some of those had massive death tolls, but there was a toll. Now we're told we're all being slowly poisoned all the time. Microplastics, forever chemicals. And maybe we are. But now knowing, not seeing, not counting, but taking on faith the doom, that is a kind of poisoning all its own. It's unsettling, and I think it's unfair. It's an omnipresent story of doom that truly is too much for any of us to bear. And that's it for today's show. 
Corey War is the GIST producer and Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperoo, G-peroo, do-peroo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>